Devin, you carry your Bibles around. Even if it gets illegal, you'll still carry your Bibles around and you can just follow me off to jail. We're going to keep teaching from it irregardless. Amen. Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua 20, a short chapter, but a powerful chapter. And it brings us to these cities of refuge. And as we find them here in the 20th chapter, we have a, a very specific place that these lie in our lives. We'll get to that later, but these are very important places to the children of Israel. And they're very important places to us, of course. And so tonight, as we begin chapter 20, and we'll take all nine verses of it, we'll make it through, I think, after some of these large chapters that we've covered. We've got another one coming up next week. But God commands and appoints these six cities of refuge, a place that you could go from the avenger of blood. And as we look at these, of course, this is in a context of the Old Testament times in the context of the law. And you have to keep that in focus. This was a time when the law was how men related to God. Praise God, we're no longer under the law. Amen? Amen. But under grace. And as we're under grace, we no longer relate to God in the same way. Uh, as the Old Testament Jews did. But there are some very similar principles that we find there, and certainly God's holiness has never been diminished, even one iota. And so God was then as he is now. Matter of fact, your Bible says he changes not, says the Lord. Amen? So he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always was, always will be, always is. And so tonight, chapter 20, and the cities of refuge. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us tonight through his word. Father, we're so grateful that we have your word, Lord, in a world where there are so few things uh, that we can trust in, almost nothing that we can rest in. And so, God, tonight we rest and we trust in you, in your word. We pray that you'd speak to us through it. God, that you'd bless our time, that you'd anoint it, that you'd use it for your wonderful plans and purposes in our lives to instruct us, to cause us to grow, to help us to run to you, Lord, our very present help in our time of need. And so, God, we ask that you would work in us now to will and to do that which is your good pleasure. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 here in Joshua 20. And so the Lord also spoke. Remember last time we finished up the division of the land. Uh, that has ended. And we found out that Joshua got his land last. And so, it, so the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Speak to the children of Israel. And so he's now going to speak to the entire nation all at once. We don't know exactly how he does that, whether he you know, goes and speaks to each tribe individually and gives them these things, or whether he gathers them all together. Uh, they're in Shiloh where they have moved the tent of the meeting. They, they, they bring in this group together and speak to them all at once. It's likely that there were hundreds of thousands of Jewish people even at that time. And he says to them, saying, appoint for yourselves cities of refuge. And it's important that you get the picture here, and we're going to set that uh, very clearly, because God would differentiate uh, between the crime of manslaughter and the crime of murder. 
Those two things are not the same. And so when Christians uh, wrongly interpret Scripture to say, Thou shalt not kill, your Bible doesn't say that. Your Bible says, Thou shalt not murder. That means to take life without regard for God's law. Because God nowhere, in fact, he actually invented capital or corporal punishment, whichever you prefer, and we'll get there in a while. God never said that mankind uh, was to not have capital punishment. God actually instituted it. But what he did say was there was a huge difference between someone accidentally killing somebody or someone being killed in a uh, a battle or something of that light or someone is stealing something and they get killed or they get run over by an ox, gored by an ox is actually one of the things that's in the Old Testament. There's a huge difference between that and someone killing somebody for their own selfish reasons, ill-gotten gain, to steal from them, to take their life for a selfish purpose. And so in order to prevent those two things from being confused, the Lord creates a place of refuge, in this case, cities of refuge. And so he says, appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses that the slayer who kills the person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there. You see the very strong differentiation between that which was purposeful, willful, and disobedient, and that which was accidental or perhaps unintended. And so the Lord then says, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And now I want you to notice something here, because it's a word that some of you, uh, having studied with us for a while, perhaps having heard uh, the story in the book of Ruth of the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, uh, that is exactly the word that's used here for the phrase, the avenger of blood. And so we can begin to kind of see exactly what the Lord is speaking to us in this particular passage In other words, these cities were to be a place to where the blood which was to be rightly avenged would be taken into account. It would be there that someone could run and hide. And there are some things that you need to know about the kinsman redeemer, the Goel. And it is important to differentiate there between the city of refuge and the person who is actually the avenger. But in our case, in our day and time, Jesus Christ is both the avenger of blood And he's also the city of refuge, because he is the one to whom we actually owe uh, our own lives. Because we ourselves were under the penalty of death, he took that penalty for us as the Goel. He was the avenger of our blood. He died on Calvary's cross, shedding his blood in our place. And so he acted that way. But he is also the place that we go to to run and hide. And so we have this beautiful picture Uh, here in this 20th chapter of the book of Joshua. Four things were required in the Old Testament uh, there in the book of Leviticus. First, this person must be a near kin. Of course, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of God to, to be that 
eternal uh, being that we now are because we have eternal life. And so we are near kin to him. Matter of fact, so much so that we're called the Lord's brothers. We're called, called the Lord's sisters. We're, we're called the Lord's family. We're called his beloved. We're called the adopted sons of God. We are near to the Lord himself. And so that, that kinsman, that Goel, needs to be a near kin. He must also be able to redeem. That means he needs to be able to pay the price. And in this case, if you went to the city of refuge, the price could be paid for you by you being rescued from the penalty of your own wrongdoing. In other words, you did something was wrong, but it was not intentional on your part. It wasn't what you meant to do. Someone lost their life, and so you ran there, and then that was a place where you could be redeemed, but you had to be able to do it. And so someone would come to the city, and they would say, I am the near kin of this person, and you would be set free. The priest would then pronounce a a sentence upon you, declare it null and void, and then you could go back to your own family. And so you can see these pictures of Jesus in, in this whole system whereby the Lord established these things. So as the Jewish people established these cities of refuge, and they established the, who the avenger of blood was, God was trying to get their attention. He's saying, look, we mess up every once in a while. Amen? Anybody mess up in here? Good, I figured as much. Yeah, we mess up, don't we? We do things. Sometimes you kind of shake your head, you scratch your head, you go, man, I don't even know why I did that. I was doing fine, and then all of a sudden something catches your eye in the world, the flesh, the devil get involved, and you do something that you really hadn't planned on doing, and you're genuinely sorry for it. You you want to be forgiven for it, but it takes the shedding of blood to erase that sin. The price has to be paid. You also had to be free from any calamity or need of redemption yourself. If you were going to go in for someone else and they had committed a capital crime, in this case it would be manslaughter because you couldn't have them redeemed for murder, only manslaughter. In other words, it wasn't something that could cost you your life. You had to be free from that yourself. So you couldn't go in and have, you know, killed his brother and then go in and say, hey, I'm redeeming this person. You had to be free. So guess what? Jesus Christ is the sinless, spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? So he's free himself. So you can see these pictures and how the Lord established these these things uh, that seem kind of odd to us. And then fourthly, Again, according to the book of Ruth, the, the, the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, the avenger, uh, had to be willing to do it. They had to be willing to redeem. You could not force someone to go redeem someone else's sin. If they committed that capital crime, they had to voluntarily go to the city of refuge. They had to voluntarily pay the price. They could not be in need of forgiveness themselves, and they had to be related to that person. Those are the four things. And so as we look at the city of refuge, it, pays, it, it paints a very beautiful picture of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so as we look at this particular picture, once the price was paid, it was a done deal. For by grace you've been saved, true faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. If you are one of God's kids... No one can snatch them out of my hand, Jesus said, who are mine. Amen? So once the prize is paid, the deal is done. That was the picture at the city of refuge. In the city of refuge, 
that near relative could come in, they could pay the price, they'd be willing to do it, didn't need it themselves. It was a done deal. And once it was done, even though there's someone lost their life, that person got to go free. We get to go free because of Jesus. Amen? He is our Goel. The kinsman redeemer was also equated in Leviticus 25 to a rich benefactor. In other words, it was someone who had the capacity beyond what you have to take care of your problems. Hallelujah that Jesus has the capacity to take care of the things that are wrong with us uh, beyond our own ability. And there in Leviticus 25:25, it says, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest of kin could come and buy it back. And as a relative, he could buy back what is sold. And so that opportunity was there. It pictured us. It pictures you. It pictures me. And so Jesus was kind of, when we talk about the Jewish people and what their understanding should be uh, of the Messiah, you can begin to see how when you get down to the week that we're in, in Luke's Gospels, we're in the last week of Jesus' life, you look at all of these things. So now start thinking about what Jesus did. He had to be willing to come. What did he do? He came to Jerusalem. He had to be able to pay the price. He said, it is finished. He, he could not have any spot or blemish himself. He was the perfect Lamb of God, so much that Pilate himself said, I find no fault in this man. Do you see the picture? And so that was the city of refuge. They'd come in, and, and it was like a neutral place where everyone could come. The principle here uh, that, that is being addressed in this particular chapter is actually found in Genesis chapter 9. And it says, therefore, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Do you get it? And when, when people say, well, you know, we, we, capital punishment is not of God, it's not true. God actually invented capital punishment. Do we take it lightly? Heavens, no. Of course not. But the principle is there in Scripture. It actually comes from the Bible. And so when we talk about there being things that, that maybe someone should forfeit their life for, of course we want to take all the possible legal remedies to make sure that they're absolutely guilty. But capital punishment is not against the Bible. Anybody that says that it is just simply doesn't know what the Bible says. And in fact, Romans chapter 13 gives us a picture in the New Testament of the state having the right and the responsibility to use the sword not in vain. In other words, the sword itself is to be used by the government. Notice it doesn't say that necessarily the the people of God were supposed to engage in that, but the government is there for that purpose. So that if someone is in, that's why we can support law enforcement. That's why we can support the military. That's why we can support the government taking action against wrongdoers. When Christians misinterpret scripture and they become, you know, in essence, a, a complete pacifist that says that we should never fight over anything, they don't even understand what God says about civil government. And so we need to make sure that we hold that view. Otherwise... As Christians, we could say, well, let's just get rid of all law enforcement. Let's not have a military. Let's just, when somebody comes and steals your stuff, let them steal your stuff. Uh, don't do that. You're supposed to be good stewards over the things that God's given you. Somebody breaks into your house, I'm not saying the first thing that you should do is shoot them. Uh, but, I, but I am saying that if somebody breaks into your house 
and they're going to take your children, and you have an option to shoot them as opposed to them take your children, by all means, please do shoot them. I would hope that you could aim well enough to possibly not take their life, but God does not hold the view that we should not respond to evil with force. God responded to evil with force. So when we talk about people like ISIS, it's, it's shocking to read some of the blogs where people professing to be Christians. Well, you know, we really shouldn't be doing this. Well, if we don't, who does? You know, you're really going to allow 500 men, women, and children, mostly children and women, to be lined up on the side of the ditch and shot when we could do something about it? I don't think so. I think we have a responsibility as a God-fearing people to act on behalf of those who are unable to act for themselves. God said that unpunished murders defiled the land. It says there in Numbers 35, verses 31 to 34, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. And therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell. God said, look, I'm in the land with you. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. And of course, again, this is Old Testament times. It was specific because they had no police force at that time. This was, this was the rule of law uh, in the hearts of people. And so when it came to the death of someone else in, in, in the hands, then the avenger of blood was the one who came from the family to pursue, pursue the, the person who was the murderer, the killer. And so God invented these things for us, for our benefit, specifically because he knows the hearts of men. Remember, God's word declares that mankind, our hearts are wicked, deceitfully so, and that we ourselves don't even know that. If you don't see that, all you got to do is look at the world. Amen? You look at the world, you go, how does somebody like Kim Jong-il end up in power? Because the hearts of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, and who can know it? How do you end up with uh, Mussolini? How do you end up with a Hitler? How do you end up with a Pol Pot? How do you end up with a Stalin? Because men are wicked. They're evil. And they will do evil things. And so God, uh, in that sense, has set it up to allow us the opportunity to avenge and to make sure that people took very seriously the thought of taking someone else's life. And if you don't do that, you end up with what we've got going on in Central and South America right now. And people don't think about it. When I was traveling back and forth to Brazil, I didn't try not to focus on it. But the Brazilian, uh, Brazilian police specifically kill six to seven people a day. And that's just what they do. And they go out and somebody's causing problems. They, ask, they shoot and then ask questions. I'm not saying we should do that. But I'll tell you what it does do. It keeps people thinking twice about what they're going to do when they're out in the middle of somewhere and they're going to rob somebody because they don't ask questions. They just shoot. They have much less problem with crime. They deal with it. Verse 4, And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them. 
and give him a place that he may dwell among them. So notice here, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. You get the picture. You can kind of see how this relates to us in the New Testament times by way of the gospel. And so someone flees to those cities, stands at the entrance of the gate of the city, declares his case. He says, look, I did not intend to kill this person. This was not murder on my behalf. I wasn't trying to steal his ox. I wasn't trying to take his money bag. I didn't just hate him and decide that I wanted to end his life. Uh, There was a farming accident, or we got into a scuffle, and and things just escalated, and it was not my intent. Uh, It just happened. He fell down. He hit his head. And so this person then declares his case. It was a custom according to the elders of the city. And, and for the most part, if you know, and we've discussed this before, if you know anything about uh, Jewish culture at the time, almost everything that was business-like, transactional, if you will, got done at the gate of the city. That is where the elders sat. And so when you came inside of any city, those things were supposed to be done. The city was a place that you dwelled in peace. So the business of the city typically got done right at the city gate, either just outside or just inside. So by the time you got to your house, you were able to just simply go and enjoy life, as it were. And so someone fleeing from the avenger of blood could find refuge in the city. And he just would come and he'd say, look, this is what happened. Here's the things that transpired uh, during this time. And so once that happened, then they explained their case. The the fleeing person could actually get protection then uh, so that there was nothing that would happen to them. And, of course, when you look at our legal system, this is this is the basic premise of our legal system that presumes innocent until someone is proven guilty. That, that is a biblical construct. That's exactly what your Bible says. That person is presumed to be innocent. Here's the case. We're going to hear all the facts. Now the avenger of blood would come, they would hear that person, and if the case was made and the elders made the decision, then they'd be turned over to the avenger of blood and their life would be forfeit. But if they heard the case and there was not evidence that this was murder, that it was simply manslaughter, the person could be set free. And so it has that picture that we have even in our legal system to this day. And so the protection now against uh, the avenger of blood, notice in verse 5, And then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unintentionally, but did not hate him beforehand. Do you see the difference between what we would call manslaughter and murder? They didn't hate him. There was no evil intent. It was a very different situation than someone who just says, you know, I just didn't like the guy, and so, you know, I shot him. I didn't like that. I was walking down the street, and I decided, you know, he was wearing the wrong jacket or whatever. I was in a school in Philadelphia, and I just didn't like the way the the substitute teacher was teaching, so I knocked him out. I don't know if you caught that little article yesterday. It's crazy. Those are intentional things whereby someone might possibly lose their life, so... He says, look, don't deliver the, the, the person who killed this other person into the hand. Don't give him to the, the avenger of the blood. But the leaders of the city are obliged to protect him until the case was solved. Uh, this, this left that possibility of the, of the person being found truly innocent of the charge against them. And it's so important that we understand that God always allows us to speak our case. 
You know, sometimes we think about our lives here on this earth and we think it's all predetermined, but the Lord's listening. He hears us out. He gives us opportunity to speak those things. And then notice what verse 6 says here in, in chapter 20. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment. Now notice what's going to happen. What, how is our legal system established? You're presumed to be innocent until proven guilty. There are presumption of innocence, not the presumption of guilt, the presumption of innocence. Notice what it says next. He shall stand before the congregation for judgment. He's standing before a group of his peers, someone to judge the facts of the case. And so when we, we look at our legal system, people think, oh, no, it's just, it's, you know, mankind. No, God actually invented our legal system. Our whole legal system is primarily a mosaic legal system. And so when you look at it, you see the presumption of innocence. You also see the congregation, what we would call the jury. And until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. In other words, the judgment of the people stood so long as the high priest didn't die. So you wanted the high priest to live. You wanted to make sure that the high priest was very well taken care of until the day of the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. In other words, it was a, it was so long basically as the the situation existed. And then the slayer may return and come into his own city, to his own house, to the city from which he fled. So what would happen? Here's here's to encapsulate it. The guy runs to the city, he's done this deed. He goes to the gate of the city. The elders say, look, sounds like manslaughter. Come on in. Once he was inside the city, then the person with the accusation would come. Do you see our legal system in play here? The person with the accusation would come. They would stand before a congregation of elders. If that person was found innocent, then they were supposed to stay in the city until the death of the high priest, and at the death of the high priest, they could then go home. And so they were protected. They were kept it was a system whereby there was a very high degree of likelihood that justice would be done. He was protected against a false accusation. He was protected against the avenger just killing somebody because he didn't like him. Uh, you know, some family members say, you know, we've hated this guy forever, so let's just, now we've got an opportunity, you know, Uncle Bob's dead, let's go take care of this guy too. So the whole system was set up to protect the innocent in essence. And so now the cities themselves are going to be selected in verses 7 and 8. And so they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, Kirjath Arba, which is also Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain, so down in the Jordan River Valley on the opposite shore of the Jordan, from the tribe of Reuben, at Ramoth-Gilead in the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan in the tribe of Manasseh. So if you were to look at these six cities, what you would find is this. If you looked at them on the map, they pretty much were scattered out over the entire, what we would call the nation of Israel today. And in fact, one all the way up in the north in the Golan Heights, one on the east side of the Jordan River, one on the west side of the Jordan River, one near Jerusalem, one in the mountains near Carmel, and one in the Valley Plain. And so you, you had these cities of refuge not too terribly far from just about everybody. They were well-spaced, and no matter where you lived, you could make it. These things are all important as we draw to the, to the latter part of this study tonight. And so it tells us also 
uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, that in order to be a city of refuge, the roads to that city had to be very well maintained. And I like this, because if you're going to get to a city of refuge, and let's just say it's just like a pile of rocks or it looks like the Kumbu Icefall on, on Mount Everest where you've got blocks of ice that are the size of houses and you've got to navigate around them. I'm pretty sure the Avenger of Blood is going to catch you before you ever get to the city. Amen? And so it appears that not only did God establish this whole system so that there would be fairness and justice in play, but also so that there would be an ease of it. So in Deuteronomy 9, you'll find that proper roads had to be built and maintained directly to the cities of refuge. So if someone was trying to get there, it wasn't difficult to get there. Uh, How hard is it to come to Christ? It's as easy as believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So in other words, the picture here is that city of refuge can't be some isolated place that nobody could find. You see the picture? It wasn't stuck in a pile of rocks over in the Edom Mountains in Jordan. It wasn't over there in some wadi someplace a hundred miles from the nearest group of people. It was scattered. The cities of refuge were scattered everywhere amongst the people. In other words, if you were a part of the people and you dwelled in the land and you lived in your inheritance, you were never more than a day's walk from a city of refuge. And so, again, another beautiful picture of our relationship that we have with God through Jesus. And so finally, we find the reason for these cities of refuge. In verse 9 it says, And these were the cities that were appointed for all of the children of Israel. And again, I'm reminding you of our relationship in Christ because that's where we can apply this. Okay, so when we look at they're appointed for all the children of Israel, the gospel came to the... Jew first, amen, and then to the Gentile. It applies to everybody. And so these are the cities appointed for all the children of Israel, for the stranger who dwelt among them. It was for the Gentiles too, amen? It was not just for the Jewish people. It was for the Gentiles, the strangers who dwelt among them. You see how the Lord is setting up this picture so they look at it. Oh, man, this kind of seems, this whole Messiah thing, it's like, hmm, He's kind of like a city of refuge, isn't he? He's kind of like the avenger of blood as well. He's the one that requires the price to be paid, but he's also the one that sets us free from the price. Do you see the picture? Start getting a hold of that. That whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there. Can I remind you that God doesn't force anybody to be saved? He doesn't say, look, you have to be saved. Your parents were saved. You have to be saved. And he also says that you have to repent of your sin. Amen? You can't keep doing things your own way and just expect God to go on like you're not doing them. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there. It doesn't say if you were a murderer, you'd be set free. It says if you, in ignorance, before you knew the Lord, committed these crimes, you you did these things, and then all of a sudden you found yourself You know, hey, I blew it. I need to run to a city of refuge. You could do that, but you can't keep doing your own thing just because that's what you want to do. There was a requirement to be in the city of refuge. You had to to have some uh, ability to say, look, this is not what I want to do. I have to confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and I'll be saved. Amen? I can't say, "Ah, I don't want the Jesus thing, but save me anyway. And there, that he might flee and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood. 
until he stood before the congregation. In other words, his case would be made. And so these sin for us is much like manslaughter. Amen? It's not supposed to be like murder. Sin for us is like manslaughter. It's not supposed to be like murder. Amen? Sin for us is like manslaughter. It's not supposed to be like murder. In other words, we're supposed to be lousy sinners. Okay, we're not supposed to be good at it. We're not supposed to be professional sinners. You were not supposed to be a professional murderer. You weren't supposed to kill people because you felt like it. It was supposed to be something accidental. You kind of fell into it. And so it is for us for sin. As, as Christians, as people who name the name of Jesus, we have no right that sin should rule in our earthly bodies any longer. Amen? You get the picture there? Let sin not reign in you any longer, the Apostle Paul said. We're supposed to live our lives as best as we can to be free from those things. So we're not supposed to be like a murderer. We're supposed to be like somebody every once in a while. Ah, man, I didn't, shouldn't have done that. That was the wrong place, wrong time, did something I shouldn't do. We run to the Lord for those things. You see, these cities were, were not just a benefit to the Israelite, but to the stranger who sojourned with them. God's justice, God's plan of salvation is without partiality. Amen? Doesn't matter where you're born, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, doesn't matter whether you're a Gentile, rich, poor, short, tall, you know, you've got money, you don't have money, doesn't matter. The Lord's justice in Christ Jesus is for all of us. And so that was the situation in that day and time. The nation was still on the other side of the Jordan. And God just tells Moses, look, I've set aside these cities. And if you go to Numbers 35, you can read all about the cities of refuge. And, and then there were also six that were mentioned in the book of Exodus. And so when you look at these cities, you can kind of see how God established all these things for the benefit of the people. God doesn't really get much benefit out of saving us. Amen? Think about it. What does he get when he saves us? Problems with a capital P. Because we're not exactly, yes, he has exactly what he wants, which he has our heart, and he has fellowship with us. But in a practical sense, he has to then also redeem us. He has to be willing to pay the price. He has to put up with our shenanigans. He has to, you know, we've, Jeff again? And because I've asked Jesus into my heart, his word says that he will forgive my sin. doesn't say he might forgive my sin. It says he will forgive my sin. So when I run to him, I, I receive that forgiveness. But sometimes I've got to stay inside the city of refuge, too, because I, I've biffed it. And you kind of get that, that place to where we have a little bit of a fellowship problem. Amen? Now, in all these things, you would think that this is something that you know died out a long time ago. But I'll, I will share with you that um, that's actually not true. You know, somebody came to me one time and says, ah, that's just the Old Testament times. I mean, people haven't been doing that kind of stuff for a very long time. Not true at all, in fact. Matter of fact, in the Hawaiian Islands, up until about 1819, uh, under King Kamehameha II, when he abolished a system called Kapu in the Hawaiian Islands, when there was a, when there was a crime, especially if there was a crime against a ruling king or an ali'i, when the ali'i, like if you were walking along a dirt path someplace, and a king or a prince or a queen came by, and your shadow got cast on their shadow, that was a death offense. Uh, but they also had cities of refuge all over the Hawaiian Islands. matter of fact, there are about 170, 180 of them still left in the Hawaiian Islands, where there's just piles of rocks, and you would run there, and same thing. They would come and get a group of tribal elders together, and they would hear your case, and then the king could not have you killed. 
And so this has been a principle in, in humankind's mind for a very, very long time. So it was just a couple hundred years ago uh, that you, you could have been in Hawaii and experienced a city of refuge. Uh, and in fact, when you broke a law during that period of time, your only hope was to make it. And guess what they did? They built roads all around the island to where you could make it to a city of refuge. And so very, very similar situation. So mankind has always realized, seemingly so, uh, that that the hearts of men are desperately wicked. And, and we need some type of guidance uh, in our own lives to, to be able to be free from those things. And so uh, when you think about that, you kind of then can see why uh, the Lord said what he said here in these passages. So when you look now at this whole thing, and it says there in Genesis 9, which we looked at before, but in verse 6 it says, Whoever sheds a man's blood, by that man's blood he, his blood shall be shed. But what it said previous to that is, From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of that man. He says, Look, here's the deal. We, we use the phrase, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, all those kind of things. That's a biblical principle. Because ultimately, that's exactly how God looks at things. That's why life is sacred. So when we look at, and you'll see an article, if you're on our prayer chain, our email prayer chain, you saw a little post I put up from that's regarding Pastor Jack Hibbs. Uh, he's one of six pastors here in California that's suing the state of California. A lawsuit has been filed against the, the Attorney General of the state of California for forcing us to buy medical coverage, medical care, that absolutely mandates that we pay for abortions. Well, I happen to believe as a Christian that paying for an abortion is paying for murder. Uh, and God is not for murder. He, that's, that is not an accidental death of an unborn child. That is the slaughtering of an innocent child in its mother's womb. And so when we look at that particular situation, we're supposed to have God's point of view on it. We're supposed to be saying, look, this is, you know, yes, there was something that happened in the life of that woman, in the life of that man. They can be forgiven, but the innocent child isn't the one that should be punished for it. It should be the parents that made the mistake. And so it is important that we get God's view on these issues of life. And so Joshua sets aside of these cities. And you'll notice that he did three cities on each side of the Jordan River just to make it fair for everybody. And the law was actually very simple. Anyone who killed another person, if it was an accident, they, they could be freed from it. And I want you to look at a couple of things as we kind of wind this down tonight. You had to forfeit your freedom in order to save your life. You had to forfeit your freedom in order to save your life. What does Jesus Christ require of us in order to save our lives eternally? You must forfeit your freedom. We call that lordship. Amen? He now is your lord. That means master. It means he calls the shots. You do what he says. That's what happened in the city of refuge. You ran into the city of refuge. You got an opportunity to have your case heard. You were declared that you were able to stay in the city of refuge. You did that. You forfeited your freedom until the death of the high priest, and then you could go home. Who died in your place? Our great high priest, amen? And then you get to go home. So now in him, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So you can see how God was setting up our understanding. He was speaking to the Old Testament Jewish people saying, look, I, I want this to be the way you live. 
I can save you from these things, but you have to accept the conditions whereby I'm offering it. And it isn't freedom to do whatever you want. You forfeited your freedom. You had to stay in the city of refuge. I have to be in Christ. I have to abide in the vine. All those principles that we see in the New Testament were pictured here in this type, uh, if you will, uh, of Jesus being the city of refuge. And since uh, in that sense, uh, Jesus is actually both the city of refuge and and he is also the avenger of blood. Because remember, John tells us there that he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Amen? There in John 1, verse 29. So he, he's, the, he's the sacrifice. He's the place that we go and rest and hide and trust. But he also says that the wages of sin is death in Romans 3. Amen? So we have the price on our head, and he pays the price. So he's actually both. So he takes care of the whole problem. God's, God's appointed Savior, he, he takes care of our problem. And, and, and that way is always open. But we have to admit that we're guilty, amen? Notice what they did. They came to the city. They came to the city gate. They were admitting they actually killed somebody. They didn't come up to the city and go, well, I didn't really do anything. You know, I was just an innocent bystander. No, they had to actually admit that they had taken someone's life and then explain it. And said, okay, we'll come in. We'll hear your story. And people can only trust in the Lord when we confess our guilt. Amen? You, you can't, nobody ever gets saved by keeping their sin. You, you don't get to do that. You don't get to say, well, you know, I'm not really a sinner, but I want Jesus. The only one who ever gets the Savior are those who declare themselves to be sinners. You have to admit that you're guilty. That's why when people say, well, I'm saved because my parents go to church, I can no, you're not. You're not saved because your parents went to church. You're not saved because you go to church. You're saved because you have admitted that you are a guilty sinner in need of a Savior, and you need a city of refuge called Jesus. That the avenger of blood, the Holy One of Israel, has every right to take your life, but he has paid that price himself so that your life is not forfeit. And so his life was taken in your place. That's what happened at the cross. My place. And because of that, think about what had to happen. When the high priest died, then you could go home. Our high priest, Hebrews chapter 7 says, But he, because he continues forever as an unchangeable priesthood, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. You see, he is the high priest that never dies. So when you put your faith and your trust in him, it's as if you went to the city of refuge, never to have to go home to your old home again. You get to go home to be with him. And so it's this beautiful picture of who we are in Christ. I want you to look at the names of some of these cities. It's really pretty cool. When you, when you look at the names of the cities in the Hebrew language, Kadesh means righteousness. Shechem means shoulder. Or actually, the place of the crook of your neck is what it literally meant. In other words, when you, when you actually are, are being affectionate to someone, you place your neck against their neck. And it was that. It was, you, you kind of cuddled in there. Hebron means fellowship. Bezer means fortress or strong. Ramath means heights. And Golan, most of the time, means exile. And so when you put these names together, Jesus Christ gives us his righteousness. Amen? Okay, think about it for a second. We can never be accused again. What does Romans 8 one say? 
There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? His righteousness, righteousness, it's not my righteousness. I don't earn it. It's a gift. He gives me his righteousness. So the city of ref, the cities of refuge, if you ran there, you got someone else's righteousness. You were actually guilty. You went to the city as a guilty person. You took someone else's life, and you were pronounced righteous because you ran to the city of refuge. And when you look at these names and you put them all together, you get this. Just like a shepherd, he carries his stuff on his shoulders. The, the, the shepherds used to grab the sheep, and they, the sheep would try and get him away, so he'd put them up on their shoulders. And when he did that, he would take you to the sheepfold where you could fellowship with other sheep. Amen? You get the picture. He's naming all these cities off. That's kind of weird. I don't want to pick that name. And, of course, when we run to him, we're also inside of his fortress because in him we are safe. Amen? What can separate you from the love of God? Doesn't your Bible say? Is there anything? Height, breadth, depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So he is our fortress in that sense. When we get done at the end of our lives, will we not live in the heights of heaven with him? Though we live right now on this earth as exiles and pilgrims and sojourners. And so these pictures of these, these six cities of refuge give us almost the entire gospel message. It's like, look, he gives us his righteousness. He carries us on his shoulders so that we might have fellowship with him and with each other. In him we are safe. We're in his fortress. In him we dwell in the heights because while we were on this earth, we counted not our own life, dear, just as Paul said. We're sojourners. We're, we're pilgrims while we're here. And so these cities of refuge explain to us a little bit about what God wants from us while we're uh, here on this earth. So Jesus is that city of refuge. There was an application, of course, for the children of Israel as well, because the nation of Israel was going to be guilty of killing the Messiah. Amen? Nobody needed to run to the city of refuge more than, at that time, the Jewish people. And we're going to see that. We're actually beginning that part in Luke's Gospel on Sunday. It was actually the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, who came against Jesus. It was the court of law, God's law, that they said, wow, you've blasphemed God. You've declared yourself to be God. This is blasphemy. We find you guilty. And because of that, they put him to death. But it's interesting that the the writer of the book of Acts, which was Dr. Luke, in his second gospel, if you will, said that that was a sin of ignorance on the part of the people. There in Acts chapter 3, he says, look, they, they did not see Jesus for who he was. And so they came against him. You remember what Jesus prayed when he was on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He didn't say, well, of course they knew. I mean, look at the cities of refuge. I mean, how come, you know, look at Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. They should have known who I was. If they just read the book of Isaiah, they would have known who I was. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In essence, he was declaring them guilty of manslaughter rather than murder, wasn't he? He didn't say they didn't do it. He said they don't know what they're doing. They engaged in this in ignorance. They didn't know 
that they were killing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so when people become anti-Semitic because of the cross, they forget that it was me and you, all of us, that put Jesus on Calvary's cross, if you want to look at it that way. It wasn't just the Sanhedrin. It wasn't just the Romans. It certainly wasn't Pilate turning him over. It was none of those things. It was my sin and yours. And in fact, that's why we can still be saved. Because if it had been something that was intentional for us, I doubt very seriously if if my intent was to see Jesus, God's only son, killed, I doubt very seriously that God would offer me salvation. It has to be something that's, that's in my ignorance. And so he says, look, here it is. Here it is. You confess your sin, I'll be faithful and just to forgive. The way was open for forgiveness. And God basically said to the, na- the nation, look, you spent 40 years repenting. Okay, Here's some cities of refuge. Let's get this right. When you mess up from here on out, run to a city of refuge and we'll take care of the problem. But make sure you do that in ignorance, that you're not willingly going against God. And today, Romans chapter 3 says, you know what? We can't plead that same kind of ignorance. The Bible says what it says. We have the complete word of God now, and we know the plan of salvation. We're not walking around going, well, gee, you really didn't know about this Jesus guy. It's like the, the, the new and the latest, the new attack against, against the Lord. Another new gospel that's been found. Came out today, you know, some knucklehead in London, you know, reading some ancient manuscript written in Syriac. They don't even know that Jesus didn't speak Syriac. He spoke probably Aramaic. But the, the bottom line is, is that they say that he was married to Mary Magdalene. He had a couple of kids and they're attacking Jesus again. Well, we know who Jesus is. We know what he did. We know how he lived his life. And we have the completed scriptures to tell us that. And so some things that we can kind of draw from this, some similarities. The Bible clearly applies the city of refuge more than 15 times in just the the Psalms alone. The book of Hebrews, which we just looked at that passage in chapter 6, the book of Hebrews points to Christ being our city of refuge. It points to Christ as being our high priest. points to Christ as fulfilling these things. And so when you look at them, uh, there's some very huge similarities. The Bible applies... Uh, these things very clearly to the Lord Jesus. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within easy reach of a needy person. Amen? Think about it. The road's paved. The way is clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But it's simple. Gives you faith to believe. Gives you the grace of God when you do believe. Amen? That's not hard. It's not a difficult thing. There was no huge process. You didn't have to have a pass to get in the city of refuge. You didn't need to go to a city of refuge study group to figure out what you needed to say when you got there. You went to the city of refuge. You pleaded your case. You got in. Same thing is true. And and in fact, the cities of refuge would have been absolutely useless if someone couldn't get there. Amen? Amen. I mean, what good would a city of refuge be if you could just see it up there on the hill someplace? Well, I'd sure like to get there, but it's too tall. I'd sure like to be able to make it over there to the city of refuge, but, you know, it's really hard to get there. Matter of fact, there's no road to get there. So Jesus is like the city of refuge. 
That's why it says to as many as received him. We get to become the sons of God, daughters of God, God's kids. It's not a hard thing. Both Jesus and the city of refuge are open to all, not just the Israelites. It wasn't just a Jewish thing. Notice how it says very clearly here. And the scriptures are absolutely clear. Matter of fact, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he came to the Jew first. He looked at Jerusalem and he said, You who murdered the prophets. Now the gospel is open to anyone who will believe. Doesn't matter where you're born. Doesn't matter what language you speak. The gospel's good for all of us. No one needs to fear that you're going to be turned away from the place of refuge in your time of need. You don't need to fear that. You're not going to get well. You know you're the wrong color. You speak the wrong language. You know you can. Man, you're from Running Springs. You can't be saved. It's like you were a drug addict. You can't be saved. You were in that horrible, you can't be saved. You were in that, that relationship with that guy, with that lady. Are you kidding me? No way. The cities of refuge are open to anyone who will come and say, I'm guilty. Isn't that awesome? I'm guilty. Save me. Let me stay in you. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge became a place where someone in need could live. Think about it. You lived there. You said, I'm guilty. You moved into the city of refuge. We abide in him, do we not? It means to live in. It means to take up residence. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen? You see it? It's a perfect picture. We now now live in him, and he lives in us as well. We've moved into his city, and he's moved into us. His righteousness covers us. He didn't come to a city of refuge in, in, in time of need just to look around. <laughs> oh, look, city of refuge, cool. And then walk back out because you'd be killed. You had to stay, you had to abide in the vine. Amen? You had to stay in the city. Remember, you forfeited your rights. You, you needed to say, look, I'm staying here. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge were the only alternative to someone in need. That's why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Amen? There was no other way for you to survive having accidentally murdered somebody but to run to the city of refuge and stay there. If you did anything else, the avenger of blood could take your life. It was the only option. Mankind doesn't like that. Mankind does not like the fact that Jesus Christ is exclusive. He is the only way. He is the only truth and the only life. He's not one of many. He's one of one. And so you you don't have any other alternative. Without that specific protection, you were lost. Without naming his name, you're lost. Without declaring him Lord, you're lost. And the final thing, both Jesus and the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries. To the Christian who says, I can do whatever I want because I've received the grace of God, 
I say to you, you're wrong. Because scripture does not teach that. We're to flee those youthful lusts. We are to put off the old man and put on the new man. We are to have our minds renewed by Christ. We're supposed to count our lives lost for the excellency of Christ. We are supposed to resist the devil. Matter of fact, Paul put it so succinctly that he said, What then? Might I, must we go on sinning that grace might abound? And he answered his own question and he said, heavens no. Absolutely not is the answer to that. You, you see, to go outside of the boundaries also meant death. Now, we're not saved by keeping the boundaries. Let me make that very clear. But if you are God's child, then you live within the city. He is Lord. It's what lordship is. When we talk about Jesus being both Savior and Lord, Lord is Master. You live within Him. In that, you have complete freedom. Complete freedom. Because He, as the High Priest, has already paid the price with His own life. He has already died in your place. And so when you die, you go where He is. That's why He could say to the disciples, Hey, look, guys. Don't don't worry about these things, for in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But it is true that I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you might be also. You see, he says, look, I am the high priest forever. So where I am, that's where you're going to be. So you live in him now by him being in you here, and you live with him there because that's where he is. And so whether we are absent or whether we are present, Paul said, we are always with the Lord. Because he's our city of refuge. There is one final thing, and it's a crucial distinction, and it's so important. The cities of refuge only help the innocent. If you were guilty, it cost you your life. But check this out. Jesus, our city of refuge, the guilty can come and be set free. Amen? God is good. He has all these beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of what he would do, of how he would act, how he'd respond to us. And we need to lay hold of them because people sometimes say, well, you know, you know, God was just mysterious and you know, didn't give anybody any information. There's a reason why the early church was very highly populated with Jewish people. Because a lot of them did get it. They saw it and they said, Messiah, it's got to be who he is. Praise God for our city of refuge, Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, seeing our need, established a city of refuge in your son, Jesus. And to anyone who's guilty and knows it, we can run to him. And we can confess our sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. Lord, your word is so true and so perfect. Gives us such a beautiful picture. Pray that you bless us, Lord. Help us to stay in the city. Lord, help us to live out our lives within the city walls. And then when we finally take our last breath, we get to be home with our Savior. Lord, you have already avenged our blood on Calvary's cross. You paid the price for us. 
It's already been taken care of. All we need to do now is just simply run to you and say yes. Lord, thank you for that. We pray that you'd help us to abide in the vine. And we know your response as you abide in us if we'll do that. Bless us as your people. Fill us with your spirit tonight, God. Send us to our homes, Lord, and have us put our heads down on our pillows and just dream of the glories of heaven. Lord, heal us from our sicknesses. Tend our wounds, Lord. Cause us to do great, wonderful, and mighty things for your name's sake and for your kingdom. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.